Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Krishan Thiru. He's the Country Medical Director for Pfizer Australia and New Zealand and the Cluster Medical Director for the Internal Medicine Group in Developed Asia. He has more than 15 years' experience in the innovative medicines industry, spanning multiple therapy areas, including immunology and inflammation, cardiovascular and metabolic disease, neuroscience, pain and rare disease. Prior to joining industry, Krishan worked in clinical medicine in hospital and community settings in metropolitan and regional Australia. He obtained his medical degree from the University of Sydney. He's a fellow of the RACGP. He's got a Master's of Management from the Union New South Wales. He's also a scientific board member for the Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs. Hey, Krishan, how are you? Hi, Pete. Very good. Thanks. How are you? Really, really good. Thank you so much for joining. I've been looking forward to this conversation all day, and I'm sure you have too. So that's good. Let's, <laughs> let's kick things off. You know, some really important topics to cover, and let's get straight into it. Sure. The vaccine. As a society, we're reopening. We're hearing more about Pfizer and their role with the long-anticipated vaccine for COVID. What news can you share about it? Well, I'm sure uh, your listeners are aware that there have been some pleasing uh, developments and announcements in the general media over the last few weeks in relation to a vaccine. What I should say, I suppose, to start off with as a disclaimer is that everything Pfizer has uh, released so far and said publicly comes with caveats and we need to continue through the clinical development and full regulatory approval pathway before we can say too much more about it publicly. But obviously, there have been some announcements earlier in November, uh, Pfizer speaking specifically about a vaccine that we co-developed with a German company called BioNTech, released some interim uh, and then a little bit later in the month some final effectiveness results publicly and then uh, just recently made an announcement that certain safety milestones required by the FDA for application for emergency use in authorization in that country those milestones um, had been reached and that applications had been made to the FDA and to uh, other regulatory agencies uh, around the world for their consideration. So certainly some pleasing developments in the global battle against the COVID-19 pandemic, and not just from Pfizer, but obviously in relation to other vaccines that are in development as well. And we certainly hope as, as many of the vaccines in development as possible do eventually make it through the regulatory process into patients as quickly as possible so that collectively we can get on top of this pandemic in the near future. Yeah. You know, it blows my mind about the pace in which some of this can happen from a regulatory point of view. From your perspective, what's it looking like in terms of timeframes to a vaccine being available? I know there's a lot that's still in the air, but is there any kind of indications at this stage? Look, you've made a good point about some of the timeframes that all of the vaccines have been developed. And that's probably different to you know the traditional preventive vaccines that can take many, many uh, years to develop. Mm. But all of the companies and various stakeholders involved in vaccine development, whether it's uh, you know, scientists working in universities, in biotechs, in, in large pharmaceutical companies, government organizations, policymakers, some of the global vaccine alliances, 
I think given this has been a once in a century pandemic, have really worked collaboratively to make sure that we could safely accelerate some of those timelines for development of a vaccine. And that's been done through, you know, some novel ways. So rather than, you know, sequential portions or segments of the development program being done one after the other, some of those have been done in parallel at, at risk. And that's why we've been able to collect the data that we've asked and other companies have been able to collect the data that we have been able to, to collect about our vaccines in development in a much shorter time frame. We've also been discussing with regulatory agencies rather than waiting right till the end and then submitting all the data at one time. And um, we have been communicating regularly with major regulatory agencies around the world about our, our plans, clinical trial plans, what the preliminary data looked like, what the subsequent data looked like. Um, so they've had a view of that and hopefully they'll be able to look at the data in the totality and come to their determination as efficiently as they can so that patients will be able to have access as soon as possible. Hmm. No, really cool. And so from a patient's perspective, eventually when we do have a vaccine with yours, what does that actually look like? Do we take one? Do we take multiples? It's an injection, I assume? Yes, the vaccines in development and our, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine specifically is uh, an injected vaccine, two doses, a few weeks apart. All the details of how it'll be rolled out in various countries are the subject of ongoing discussions between vaccine manufacturers, governments in those countries, including in Australia and in New Zealand, uh, and public health organisations, health departments and clinician groups as well. So those discussions will continue and in parallel with the regulatory agency assessments so that if and when the vaccines are approved, the logistical systems will be in place to ensure that they can be rolled out as quickly as possible. And I saw as well, it needs to be kept really cold. Is that right? That sounds like there's something a bit different to a normal vaccine. Yeah, so many vaccines uh, require cold chain storage or refrigerated storage. The particular vaccine that Pfizer is developing is what's called an mRNA-based vaccine. So Traditional or conventional vaccines use a inactivated or killed part of the, I suppose, the target virus, and that's introduced into the body, and that triggers an immune response so that when someone encounters the real virus in the future, they have antibodies and have immunity to be able to combat that very quickly so they don't become unwell. So an mRNA vaccine works a little bit differently in that rather than introducing an actual part of the SARS coronavirus 2 virus, which is the causative virus for COVID-19, it introduces the genetic code or the genetic sequences for a particular part of the virus, so the spike protein on the surface of the virus. And that's introduced through the vaccine and then the body's own cells use those genetic sequences to produce that spike protein and that triggers the body's immune response so that if a person encounters the virus in the future, they'll be able to ramp up their response and fight that off without becoming unwell. So it is a, a new technology. The particular mRNA vaccine that we're developing does require some very cold chain storage, but we've got vast experience and a long heritage in storing and transporting vaccines and expertise in that area. And we have the infrastructure in place to actually supply the vaccine worldwide should it be approved, including you know distribution hubs that can store the vaccine doses at that temperature for long times and also shipping containers and transport 
transport processes that can move it uh, around the world to distribution points uh, safely and effectively. And that's already happening. So the phase three or the pivotal clinical trials um, have been conducted in multiple countries. So as well as the United States and Germany, where the two companies are headquartered, it has also been conducted in Argentina, in Brazil, in South America, in Turkey, and in South Africa. So it's already been shipped effectively to those locations without any uh, any issues. So we're very confident that the processes that we have in place will ensure that the vaccine can be shipped and transported effectively. Yeah, no, nice one. And they're warm countries too. Um, <laughs> fantastic. And I mean, such an important innovation, like probably the most important thing happening in healthcare right now in terms of the vaccine. So thank you for that update. Just thinking broadly then about COVID-19, and I guess if we've got time to reflect, what has COVID-19 taught us about the importance of collaboration, not just in vaccine development, but, but innovation as a whole? Look, I think we've all uh, learned uh, a lot and we've all, you know, pivoted very quickly within our industry from the way things are usually done to the way things can be done to ensure treatments and, and vaccines are developed in a much faster way, ultimately to fulfill our, our purpose and advise our, our purposes to develop and deliver breakthroughs that change patients' lives. And really, it's been a wonderful impetus to move along that path very quickly. I mean, in terms of collaboration, right? Right from the outset, Pfizer recognised that because of the widespread and long-lasting implications for all of society that no one company or one organisation could go it alone. And I think those learnings will apply uh, long beyond uh, COVID-19. Way back uh, in March, our CEO, who's a, a Greek-born veterinary surgeon, um, he set out a five-point plan outlining how the scientific community could work together to overcome the pandemic and, and the role that our company wanted to play in that collaborative model. And there were you know, various things we agreed to share, the various tools and insights that we developed um, to look into COVID-19, sort of you know, viral screening techniques, cell-based assays, serological assays, translational models. Um, we said we'd share our data in real time, and that's been done by many researchers using preprint servers. We said we'd, you know, marshal our people with a dedicated SWAT team of leading virologists, biologists, uh, chemists, uh, clinicians, epidemiologists, vaccine experts, and that they would uh, have, while they had a single focus of accelerating the discovery and development of COVID vaccines and treatments, they were very willing to work with other companies, and that could be, you know, smaller biotech companies, scientists in academia who maybe have some great ideas but lack the experience or scaling in late stage development and in navigating the complex regulatory systems. And I suppose we've got a, you know, a few examples if we talk about just COVID for a moment, our collaboration with BioNTech, which is where our vaccine has come out of, our potential vaccine has come out of. We've also offered to collaborate with other companies on manufacturing their products. And we do have a vast global manufacturing network and, you know, from time to time, there is excess manufacturing capacity and we offered that to other companies. And we announced publicly back in August that we're actually assisting Gilead Sciences in, in manufacturing one of their COVID treatments just because of the capacity and the scale that we have. So we're very happy to help manufacture other companies' products, um, not just our own, in an effort to get, you know, life-saving breakthroughs into the community as quickly as possible. 
So I think those are a few examples of where, you know, learnings that will come out of our COVID experience that I think will apply long beyond COVID. And they're good examples of private and public companies and organizations working together with the ultimate same goal. And that is to, you know, deliver those breakthroughs to patients who need them as quickly as possible. Yeah, it certainly brought everyone in the industry together for a common goal. That is for sure. So beyond the innovation side of things and even further than COVID, just generally looking at, say, the execution of these ideas and particularly for Australia, when we look at, you know, medicine innovation and Australia generally, we're so awesome at the early stage discovery side of things. But how do we then really double down on the execution side and getting things to, you know, solutions to patients' bedsides? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Pete. Australia's got some amazing scientists and a very strong track record of developing breakthrough innovations, but it's uncommon and, you know, with a few notable exceptions that that actually becomes a finished product that is delivered to patients. So why is that? And maybe that is because Australia is a fairly small country population-wise in terms of the big companies who are able to scale those developments into actual treatments or vaccines. There is a limited capacity to do that locally. And so I think, you know, getting back to what we've been talking about, it really needs a willingness to collaborate collaborate with larger organizations, whether that's large pharmaceutical companies or other large global organizations, maybe a little bit earlier on in the process. So to learn about what kind of trials and studies are going to need to be done to ultimately obtain a successful regulatory approval, whether that be with the FDA or in Europe or elsewhere, and maybe a greater willingness by large global companies as well to actually seek out uh, that expertise in smaller countries like Australia. But I think that is evolving. And certainly I know a, a lot of companies and Pfizer is one of them is open to great science wherever it comes from. And we've got a particular model, our CTI model, where we actually do look for innovative science, innovative early stage science, uh, wherever that may be. And we do have some uh, collaborations uh, in Australia already. One uh, you know, is with a, a Melbourne Cancer Group. Um, we have an agreement with them to further develop some of their novel ideas that potentially may lead to successful cancer treatments that have originated in Melbourne, but that, that may have global applicability. So I think it needs you know, a willingness on both sides. One, amongst those early scientists to partner and collaborate with larger organizations earlier, and also for those large organizations to uh, look for science and look for good science all over the world and help those you know, smaller organizations and early stage scientists to actually to grow their ideas so that ultimately uh, patients can benefit from their discoveries. But uh, I think we are making good progress in that area. Yeah. And to continue on from that too, I mean, I love the concept around collaboration within the industry, thinking specifically from say health tech or med tech as an industry, what can we be doing to be able to partner with pharma to be able to deliver on some of these innovations? That's a really interesting question. It's one that we actually think about a lot. So most pharmaceutical companies and especially Pfizer, we're not devices companies. We're not um, digital tech companies. We are pharmaceutical companies and our focus is on developing medicines and vaccines that will uh, change patients' lives. Now, obviously, digital expertise and technology and med tech is increasingly crucial across all stages of 
the drug development or the discovery and the development timeline and then and the marketing and distribution of our products as well. We don't have that expertise. So we are always on the lookout for that expertise elsewhere. And we have a global network of what we call the Pfizer Healthcare Hub. And I'm sure, you know, at another opportunity, we could talk about that in more detail. But we're always looking to partner with Australian and other uh, medtech organisations that may have tools or technologies that are able to assist us in the areas of disease awareness and information around, you know, health promotion and health literacy and patient education, technologies, tools for earlier detection and better diagnosis. We've got already uh, a few examples where we've done that successfully. For example, we have partnered with an organization called uh, AliveCore that has a device that helps uh, screen for certain heart irregularities. And, and we have a treatment in that area. And it's uh, often an asymptomatic and poorly diagnosed uh, condition as a result. And so, you know, technologies that are available to screen for and diagnose some of those illnesses that are otherwise hard to diagnose where there are effective treatments available. Technologies around medication access, so that's potentially around monitoring, you know, for patient reported outcomes that can help track patient signs and symptoms so that we can actually see whether the medications they're taking are actually making a difference to their health. And that can help demonstrate to payer organisations whether it's actually worth funding a medicine. So is that medicine actually having a benefit in the real world with real patients as opposed to clinical trial patients, which can be you know, a subset of the general community? And then lastly, and this is one of the perennial challenges with medicines that you know, they are proven to work, but are patients always adherent with the recommendations of their doctors and are they actually taking those medicines uh, as recommended by their prescribing doctor? And there are various apps and other devices that can assist with that. And we're always on, you know, on the lookout for those kind of tools, as well as you know, the more traditional patient support programs. So I think in terms of medtech, we don't have that expertise within Pfizer, we're always looking for those uh, opportunities. What I would say is that, you know, there's obviously a whole ecosystem for health tech startups uh, in Australia, and it's quite well developed. But are some of those companies, do they seek advice early on enough to see is there an actual end customer for their idea and for what they're producing? And is that end customer, you know, a health provider? Is it a hospital? Is it potentially a, a pharmaceutical company or is it a patient themselves? And so when people have that idea to actually look at, you know, what the end is going to look like and speak to and collaborate with that end customer early, because I'm sure they will have some great insights that will help during the development of that particular technology or tool to make sure it has the greatest chance of um, regulatory success if it's a medical device that needs approval and the greatest chance of, of providing use to that end customer. And so they're more likely to want to purchase it. No, it's such, I mean, it's critical. That's critical advice and really helpful. Thank you. And particularly coming through from the pharma side of things as well, I think engaging with as many stakeholders as possible as an innovator is really critical. So that's a really good point. Thinking about key challenges then. So we've talked about the opportunities and, and a little bit of those challenges, but digging in a bit more for the pharma industry leaders in Australia, what are some of those challenges that you face from, from an innovation and digital health perspective? Yeah. So obviously there are a lot of challenges around conventional drug development and developing novel medicines and getting them approved and getting them funded. But if we talk specifically about digital health, and I think it's very clear from COVID, and I think the country's healthcare systems have adapted very quickly to new digital ways of operating in particular telehealth. And while once COVID is behind us, we may move back a little bit. I think that, you know, it's very clear that in the long-term future, digital technologies are going to have an increase 
increasing and ever increasing importance. In terms of the specific challenges that we have observed, so if we you know take it back to the end user, I think there's you know some always going to be some physician resistance in terms of digital natives versus maybe other generations and overcoming some of those generational challenges. There's always going to be patient hesitancy. We've seen, I'm sure, a varied reception of telehealth. You know, for example, my dad is almost 90 and during the height of the pandemic, telehealth, he had a couple of telehealth appointments with his GP and they really didn't work at all. I mean, he needed, mm. you know, myself or my, my sister there with him to actually effectively make that work. So there's going to be some patient hesitancy. So that's, I suppose, at the coalface of the actual delivery. From our point of view, I think I've spoken to a few of those in terms of how we work with the med tech industry. I think in terms of what we'll do in Internally, there's always capital investment issues as well. How much do we allocate to traditional drug development versus some of you know the new digital um, ways? And it's always a battle for funding. But um, now CEOs made it very clear that you know we want to win the digital race in, in this area, and so we're very committed to that. You know, there are some other regulatory challenges as well. Is our current system, you know, well, is it fit for purpose in terms of assessing and approving some of those med tech devices, you know, software medical devices as well? And, you know, can there be some harmonization of local TGA or, or MedSafe regulations with global regulatory agencies and global policies that might allow for you know ease of scalability of technologies here and globally as well. So I think there are a whole lot of things that need to be worked out from that point of view. But the important thing I think is that our health systems, our innovators think globally. Australia is a you know a very important part of the global health market, but is a relatively small part of it because of our limited population. So I think things are heading in the right direction, but there is still a little bit of work to be done. But it's certainly an exciting time to be involved in you know health and in digital health particularly. Isn't it? That's amazing. Yeah. Lastly, Krishan, what's standing out for you in regards to innovation when looking at what's coming up for Pfizer in the pipeline? Uh, look, uh, the future is certainly bright, I think, for healthcare. I'd like to think it's certainly bright for Pfizer. Clearly, there's a uh, you know, rapid change in our industry, in our company as well. And I've spoken about the increasing role of digital. And that won't be for digital's sake. Um, that'll be to deliver better health outcomes for patients, more convenience for patients, and potentially greater efficiency for healthcare providers and, and healthcare systems. In terms of our industry, I think, you know, what's uh, exciting is the the use of, you know, machine learning and AI to accelerate drug development and to churn through, you know, to analyze and assess and go through the terabytes and petabytes of data that are generated through every step of the drug development process. Utilization of real world evidence. So collecting data from our medicines as they're being used in the community, as opposed to, you know, the conventional uh, method of only collecting data in phase one, phase two, phase three trials and to gain approvals. Precision medicine, so you know, targeted treatments that look for a genetic or, or other abnormality that can be or other deficiency that can be specifically addressed. And I know many companies, including Pfizer, are looking at you know, gene therapy uh, platforms to, to uh, help address specific um, you know, missing proteins, for example, um, that are um, causing um, certain uh, conditions such as you know, some rare diseases, neuromuscular diseases and other hematological um, diseases, increasing 
use of wearables to screen for and you know diagnose and monitor different illnesses. So I think that's uh, without going into detail, many companies, including Pfizer, have a broad pipeline of products. And while you know COVID has been front of mind and coronavirus treatments and vaccines have been front of mind for many companies and especially Pfizer, and we've been dedicating significant resource to that. Our usual work, um, and I believe last time I checked, there's 92 different projects underway to look at medicines and vaccines for very serious or you know, some of the most serious diseases affecting populations. That work continues. And so we're very optimistic about the role that we can play and that many other companies in our industry can play to address the significant burden of disease that's ongoing in populations, both here and globally as well. Isn't it awesome to think about the potential benefits to come? So we'll watch with interest as those innovations continue to evolve. Look, Krishan, I'm sure we could talk for another half an hour or so, but we can't. So I'm going to have to, we'll finish it up there. And what I'll do, I'll put information in relation to Pfizer, but also the healthcare hub and any other information that is available in relation to Pfizer, the vaccine and other bits and pieces that you guys do, particularly in innovation uh, within, I'll put all the details in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much for making the time to have a chat and all the best for leading into the new year. No, fantastic, Pete. Um, absolutely my pleasure to speak with you and your listeners and, and good luck with the podcast as well. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.